Chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Sister Dolorosa by James Lane Allen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Sister Dolorosa had been missed from the convent. There had been inquiry growing ever more anxious, and search growing ever more hurried. They found her bucket overturned at the cistern, and near it the print of her feet in the moist earth. But she was gone. They sought her in every hidden closet, they climbed to the observatory and scanned the surrounding fields. Work was left unfinished, prayer unended, as the news spread through the vast building. And as time went by and nothing was heard of her, uneasiness became alarm, and alarm became a vague, immeasurable foreboding of ill. Each now remembered how strange of late had been Sister Dolorosa's life and actions, and no one had the heart to name her own particular fears to any other or to read them in any other's eyes. Time passed on, and discipline in the convent was forgotten. They began to pour out into the long corridors, and in tumultuous groups passed this way and that, seeking the Mother Superior but the mother superior had gone to the church with the same impulse that in all ages had brought the human heart to the altar of god when stricken by peril or disaster and into the church they also gathered into the church likewise came the white flock of the novices who had burst from their isolated quarter of the convent with a sudden contagion of fear when therefore the mother superior rose from where she had been kneeling turned and in the dark church saw them assembled close around her pallid anxious disordered and looking with helpless dependence to her for that assurance for which she had herself in helpless dependence looked to god so unnerved was she by the spectacle that strength failed her and she sank upon the steps of the altar stretching out her arms once more in voiceless supplication towards the altar of the infinite helpfulness but at that moment a little novice whom sister dolorosa loved and whom she had taught the music of the harp came running into the church wringing her hands and crying when she was halfway down the aisle in a voice that rang through the building she called out oh mother she is coming something has happened to her her veil is gone and turning again she ran out of the church they were hurrying after her when a note of command inarticulate but imperious from the mother superior arrested every foot and drew every eye in that direction voice had failed her but with a gesture full of dignity and reproach she waved them back and supporting her great form between two of the nuns she advanced slowly down the aisle of the church and passed out by the front entrance but they forgot to obey her and followed and when she descended the steps to the bottom and made a sign that she would wait there on the steps behind they stood grouped and crowded back to the sacred doors yes she was coming coming up the avenue of elms coming slowly as though her strength were almost gone as she passed under the trees on one side of the avenue she touched their trunks one by one for support she walked with her eyes on the ground and with the abstraction of one who has lost the purpose of walking when she was perhaps halfway up the avenue as she paused by one of the trees and supported herself against it she raised her eyes and saw them all waiting to receive her on the steps of the church 
For a little while she stood and surveyed the scene. The Mother Superior standing in front, her sinking form supported between two sisters, her hands clasping the crucifix to her bosom. Behind her the others, step above step, back to the doors, some looking at her with frightened eyes, others with their heads buried on each other's shoulders, and hiding somewhere in the throng the little novice, only the sound of whose sobbing revealed her presence. Then she took her hand from the tree, walked on quite steadily until she was several yards away and paused again. She had torn off her veil, and her head was bare and shining. She had torn the sacred symbol from her bosom, and through the black rent they could see the glistening whiteness of her naked breast. Comprehending them in one glance, as though she wished them all to listen, she looked into the face of the Mother Superior, and began to speak in a voice utterly forlorn, as of one who has passed the limits of suffering. "'Mother! Mother! She passed one hand slowly across her forehead to brush away some cloud from her brain, and for the third time she began to speak, uh, Mother! Then she paused, pressed both palms quickly to her temples, and turned her eyes in bewildered appeal towards the Mother Superior. But she did not fall. With a cry that might have come from the heart of the boundless pity, the Mother Superior broke away from the restraining arms of the nuns and rushed forward and caught her to her bosom. CHAPTER Nine. The day had come when Gordon was well enough to go home. As he sat giving directions to Ezra, who was awkwardly packing his valise, he looked over the books, papers, and letters that lay on the table near the bed. "'There is one letter missing,' he said, with a troubled expression, as he finished his search. Then he added quickly, in a tone of helpless entreaty, "'You couldn't have taken it to the station and mailed it with the others, could you, Ezra? It was not to go to the station, it was to have gone to the convent.' The last sentence he uttered, rather to his own thought than for the ear of his listener, "'I took it to the convent,' said Ezra, stoutly, raising himself from over the valise in the middle of the floor. "'I didn't take it to the station.' Gordon wheeled on him, giving a wrench to his wound, which may have caused the groan that burst from him, and left him white and trembling. "'You took it to the convent? Great God, Ezra, when?' "'The day you told me to take it,' replied Ezra simply. "'The day the sister came to see you.' "'Oh, Ezra!' he cried piteously, looking into the rugged, faithful countenance of the old man, and feeling that he had not the right to censor him. Now for the first time he comprehended the whole significance of what had happened. He had never certainly known what motives had brought her to him that day. He had never been able to understand why, having come, she had gone away with such abruptness. Scarcely had he begun to speak to her when she had strangely shrunk from him, and scarcely had he ceased speaking when she had left the room without a word and without his having so much as seen her face. Slowly now the sad truth forced itself upon his mind that she had come in answer to his entreaty. She must have thought his letter just written, himself just wounded and dying. It was as if he had betrayed her into the utmost expression of her love for him, and in that moment had coldly admonished her of her duty. 
For him she had broken what was the most sacred obligation of her life, and in return he had given her an exhortation to be faithful to her vows. He went home to one of the older secluded country places of the bluegrass region, not far from Lexington. His illness served to account for a strange gravity and sadness of nature in him. When the winter had passed and spring had come, bringing perfect health again, his sadness only deepened, for health had brought back the ardor of life. The glowing colors of the world returned, and with these there flowed back into his heart, as waters flow back into a well that has gone dry, the perfect love of youth and strength with which he had loved her and tried to win her at first and with this love of her came back the first complete realization that he had lost her and with this pain that keenest pain of having been most unkind to her when he had striven to be kindest he now looked back upon his illness as one who has gained some clear headland looks down upon a valley so dark and overhung with mist that he cannot trace his own course across it he was no longer in sympathy with that mood of self-renunciation which had influenced him in their last interview. He charged himself with having given up too easily, for might he not, after all, have won her? Might he not, little by little, have changed her conscience, as little by little he had gained her love? Would it have been possible, he asked himself again and again, for her ever to have come to him as she had done that day? had not her conscience approved. Of all his torturing thoughts, none caused him greater suffering than living over in imagination what must have happened to her since then, the humiliation, perhaps public exposure, followed by penalties and sorrows of which he durst not think, and certainly a life more unrelieved in gloom and desolation. In the summer his father's health began to fail, and in the autumn he died. The winter was passed in settling the business of the estate, and before the spring passed again, Gordon found himself at the head of affairs, and stretching out before him, calm and clear, the complete independence of his new-found manhood. His life was his own to make it what he would. As fortunes go in Kentucky, he was wealthy, his farm being among the most beautiful of the beautiful ones which make up that land, and his homestead being dear through family ties, and those intimations of fireside peace which lay closest the heart of his ideal life. But amid all his happiness, that one lack which made the rest appear lacking, that vacancy within which nothing would fill. The beauty of the rich land henceforth brought him the dreamlike recollection of a rough, poor country a hundred miles away. Its quiet homesteads, with the impressions they create of sweet and simple lives, reminded him only of a convent standing alone and forbidding on its wide landscape. The calm liberty of woods and fields, the bounding liberty of life, the enlightened liberty of conscience and religion, which were to him the best gifts of his state, his country, and his time, forced on him perpetual contrast with the ancient confinement in which she languished. Still he threw himself resolutely into his duties. 
In all that he did or planned, he felt a certain sacred, uplifting force added to his life by that high bond through which he had sought to link their sundered pathways. But on the other hand, the haunting thought of what might have befallen her since became a corrosive care and began to eat out the heart of his resolute purposes. So that when the long calm summer had passed and autumn had come, bringing him lonelier days in the brown fields, lonelier rides on horseback through the gorgeous woods, and lonelier evenings beside his rekindled hearthstones, he could bear the suspense no longer, and made up his mind to go back, if not to hear tidings whether she yet were living in the convent. He realized, of course, that under no circumstances could he ever again speak to her of his love. He had put himself on the side of her conscience against his own cause, but he felt that he owed it to himself to dissipate uncertainty regarding her fate. This done, he could return, however sadly, and take up the duties of his life with better heart. CHAPTER Ten. One Sunday afternoon he got off at the little station. From one of the rustic loungers on the platform, he learned that old Ezra and Martha had gone the year before to live with a son in a distant state, and that their scant acres had been absorbed in the convent domain. Slowly he took his way across the somber fields. Once more he reached the brown footpath and the edge of the pale thin corn. Once more the summoning whistle of the quail came sweet and clear from the depths of a neighboring thicket. Silently in the reddening west were rising the white cathedrals of the sky. It was on yonder hilltop he had first seen her, standing as though transfigured in the evening light. Overwhelmed by the memories which the place evoked, he passed on towards the convent. The first sight of it in the distance smote him with a pain so sharp that a groan escaped his lips as from a reopened wound. It was the hour of the vesper service. Entering the church, he sat where he had sat before. How still it was, how faint the autumnal sunlight stealing in through the sainted windows, how motionless the dark company of nuns seated on one side of the nave, how rigid the white rows of novices on the other. With sad fascination of search, his eyes roved among the black-shrouded devotees. She was not there. In the organ-loft above, a voice, poor and thin, began to pour out its wavering little tide of song. She was not there, then. Was her soul already gone home to heaven? Noiselessly from behind the altar the sacristine had come forth and began to light the candles. With eyes strained and the heart gone out of him, he hung upon the movements of her figure. A slight, youthful figure it was, slighter as though worn and wasted, and the hands which so firmly bore the long taper looked too white and fragile to have upheld aught heavier than the stalk of a lily. With infinite meekness and reverence she moved hither and thither about the shrine, as though each footfall were a step nearer the glorious presence, each breath a prayer. One by one there sprang into being, beneath her touch of love, the silvery spires of sacred flame. 
no angel of the night ever more softly lit the stars of heaven and it was thus that he saw her for the last time folded back to the bosom of that faith from which it was left him to believe that he had all but rescued her to love and happiness and set as a chastening admonition to tend the mortal fires on the altar of eternal service looking at her across the vast estranging gulf of destiny heartbroken he asked himself in his poor yearning way whether she longer had any thought of him or longer loved him for answer he had only the assurance given in her words which now rose as a benediction in his memory if he will deign to hear the ceaseless fervent petition of one so erring he will not leave you unhappy on account of that love for me which in this world it will never be allowed me to return one highest star of adoration she kindled last and then turned and advanced down the aisle he was sitting close to it and as she came towards him with irresistible impulse he bent forward to meet her his lips parted as though to speak his eyes implored her for recognition his hands were instinctively moved to attract her notice but she passed him with unuplifted eyes the hem of her dress swept across his foot in that intense moment which compressed within itself the joy of another meeting and the despair of an eternal farewell in that moment he may have tried to read through her face and beyond it in her very soul the story of what she must have suffered to anyone else on her face rested only that beauty transcending all description which is born of the sorrow of earth and the peace of god mournful as was this last sight of her and touched with remorse he could yet bear it away in his heart for long remembrance not untempered by consolation he saw her well he saw her faithful he saw her bearing the sorrows of her lot with angelic sweetness through years to come the beauty of this scene might abide with him lifted above the realm of mortal changes by the serenitude of her immovable devotion End of chapter ten